You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible is Literature. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, gentlemen. Today we're going to talk about an interesting character in the Bible, an important figure, a conflicted and often destructive character, King David. King David and his role in the canon and how he fits into the larger picture that you are presenting of the rise of scripture and the biblical movement. David is a very rich character. I think it is the richest even than Abraham and Moses, in the sense that although it doesn't appear early as Abraham does and Moses, but it appears early on in the prior prophets in the so-called scriptural story of Israel and Judah. And then he appears right at the end of the trajectory in Isaiah, then obviously Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And then, let me say it right from the beginning so that my hearers would have the full view, after having appeared in the prophets, he also appears in the first book of the Ketubim, which is Psalms. You know, most of the Psalms are attributed to him to the extent that one of the titles of the book, at least in the Septuagint, it is the Psalms of David, and everybody knows them like that. So very important character. But what I would like to stress here is precisely the reversal in his appearance. He begins by being the right person, the correct person, the chosen person, the beloved. And this is what David means in Hebrew, the beloved. And then things turn bad, as we all know. He is the beginning of the end, much more than Saul. And the reason his turning is so bad is that he begins as a shepherd and technically ro'etzon. That expression is very interesting in the Bible. Shepherd of flock, ro'etzon. We may not find it in the translations, but this is how it is in the original. And as I mentioned in earlier podcasts, Abel is the first Ro'etzon who has been killed by the sedentary Cain, the one who builds a city. And you could see what happened here. The preference of God was for Abel over Cain. And later, David, although he started like Abel, specifically Ro'etzon, he turns into a king. Obviously, a king, you have a palace and so on. And you have right from the beginning the story, very impressive, how he wanted to take the ark of the Lord that was in a village thrown to the side and bring it and build a building for it. And then he was criticized for that by God himself, who told him, don't you know that I never needed a building in the desert and I'm here? And we begin to see what's happening here. Obviously, he's salvaged to be picked up at the end, and God allows only his son, Solomon, to build. I mean, David, Solomon are, if you like, a couple. So that is the main point I would like to stress this morning. Now, before going further, I would like to point out how precisely Psalm 51 or 50 in the Septuagint speaks about the temple and the sacrifices 
and yet nothing will be accepted unless the person repents of his misdeed and the title of the psalm is very clear it's when he killed uriah and took his wife it's right written in the scriptural text at the beginning of psalm 51/50 so there is a reference to that action of his that only a king can do only a king can do whatever he wants with impunity basically or so the kings assume no one can punish the king in all civilizations except god not the people not his adjutants i'm mentioning this because in an article i wrote for jokabs and i would invite my readers to read it i see a connection between isaiah 66 which is the last chapter of isaiah and which corresponds to isaiah chapter 1 where in both cases god says you know i don't need your temple let alone your sacrifices <laughs> i mean all this is just for your own sake just for you to feel good and in this article i contend and i think i've shown it that there is a reflection of psalm 51 or vice versa it doesn't matter at the end of verse 2 we have he that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word and in the article i show how in the original these are the same words as the ones that are used in 51 now it's important because david is mentioned earlier in isaiah in chapter 55 and so on. it's interesting you know david allows me to show my readers that there is an interconnection inside the biblical text and the whole bible was written in tandem by the same authors so it is very important again immediately after that verse 2 of 66 we have he who slaughters an ox is like him who kills a man he who sacrifices a lamb like him who breaks a dog's neck he who presents a cereal offering like him who offers swine's blood he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like him who blesses an idol it's really the most majestic slap in the face of the so-called ritual if you want i mean one can not easily get over that now in ezekiel we have that other approach regarding david being a shepherd we have it in chapter 34 towards the end and again repeated in chapter 37 towards the end one could read this in my commentary on ezekiel so it's repeated very important where in the original the author avoids calling david a melech he will rule he will reign over the people but as a nasi reader there is an avoidance of calling him a king because the shepherds of israel which are the kings are heavily criticized in ezekiel 34 and the chosen of god by name by the way by name David at the end of 34 and at the end of 37 is the shepherd God chooses him the shepherd of the flock I'm jumping back and forth you know because this is how the bible does it in 55 Isaiah 55 where we hear about the eternal covenant of peace with David it is just at the beginning of chapter 55 and earlier in chapter 53 we heard about the chosen of god being a lamb or a you like rachel he is the head of the flock of god the culmination of all that if one hears the bible 
the way it flows, beginning with the Pentateuch, then with the prophets, and then with the Ketubim, one notices that the book of Psalms, which is, if you like, the heavenly liturgy of Zion, it's clear, perhaps some other day we can discuss that, that it has nothing to do with the actuality of Jerusalem. People imagine that at the Temple of Jerusalem, there were at least some of the Psalms that people prayed. You know, it's vain talk. It's just a book that is produced to reflect the heavenly liturgy in Zion, where God, as we hear at the beginning of 22, sits and is enthroned on the Psalms of Israel, on the prayers of Israel. We have one of the words in Hebrew that is used to speak of psalms or prayers. I hope my readers are aware of the fact that we are talking about a path, a trek where the same person as shepherd is praised and the same person as king is criticized and condemned to the extreme. Remember, it's a passage that will never be accepted by contemporary Christians and psychologists, never, that God killed the first son of David by Bathsheba. And actually, in my book, I mentioned that he struck that child, which is exactly the same verb in Hebrew that is used to speak about the plagues with which God struck Egypt. I mean, it's really shattering, and it's no joke. The child did not happen to die. I mean, obviously he died, but the text very clearly says that the first heir of David, if you like, was struck the way the firstborn of Egypt were struck with the same verb, nagaf, in Hebrew. Let me go on an aside. It is not something unique in the Bible. Another striking example, which I mentioned in my book, in conjunction with David, we have two examples. Peter is like Janus, if you like. He has two faces. It could be that Peter and the other facet that would be Simon. Another example, much more apropos, is the name Ananias in the Acts, that in both cases, we have two Ananiases, if you like, but, you know, Ananias is Ananias. There was a man whose name was Ananias in both cases in the original. It sounds exactly the same. The first one was the bad guy who cheated, remember, he kept some of the money he was supposed to offer, and he was killed at the order by Peter. Here again, that's extremely extreme, if I may say so. <laughs> extremely extreme. The other one is the channel through whom Paul was chosen and baptized. Now, the interesting thing, which parallels the case of David, is that the name David is positive. It is the beloved but then David has to be de facto beloved, in other words, act as the beloved one. And as such, he had to remain shepherd. He didn't remain a shepherd. He had to come back to his being a shepherd. Ananias has the same connotation, meaning that the meaning of the name is positive. Ananias in Hebrew means the Lord is graceful. Lord has graced us the grace of the Lord. So you see, the second one, 
behaves accordingly. He is the channel of the grace of God upon Paul. The first one is the one who betrayed God's grace. He was offered to give his contribution and become part of the flock of God, and he misbehaved the way a proprietor would behave. The first Ananias assumed that ultimately the money is his, and that brings me back to David, because in Hebrew, and that is something I repeat ad nauseam, and people have to settle for that. You know, it becomes tiring for me to remind the people, and then they forget that a king is not just a wood. In the original, Melech means the proprietor. That is why in scripture, God alone is king. But when you hear it in the Western Hemisphere, it sounds as though he's another Victoria or Elizabeth or... Uh, no, no. He is alone the proprietor. Remember that psalm where we hear that the earth is the Lord's and all there is in it, on it, which means the inhabitants. He is the proprietor, and very early in the book of Joshua, we hear that he is the Adon of all the earth, the master. So I'm jumping here, but it fits with David because David was the king, if you like. And yet the only king in Israel is God, and please hear it as proprietor, owner. That's why the Hebrews and then Israelites that were saved were the slaves of God. You're going to become my slaves. There is this ownership, which is very hard for a Western ear stamped by the Greek freedom and democracy and we decide and so on. How many times I repeated in my book that scripture was conceived anti-Greek and anti-Alexander and anti-Plato and anti-Socrates, you know. That's the whole thing. And it is time and again reflected in the Bible. So at the end, David will be the other shepherd of God's flock. And I would like to end with Ezekiel. The real shepherd is God, very clearly, in the sense that he is the shepherd as owner of the flock, whereas David is given the position to shepherd the flock of God. Let me jump to Acts. This is how Paul addresses the leaders of the church of Ephesus, which is his headquarters. You have to shepherd the church of God. Very interesting. But you're not the owner. Let me repeat that. Only God is the shepherd owner of the flock. All the other shepherds, including David, are assigned by God. Let me jump again to show my Here's the connection, which I stress actually in my book. As you know, I cover also the New Testament, which is the continuation of the Old Testament from the same perspective. Remember how Paul presents himself to explain the fact that he is the slave of Christ and the slave of God. And yet he bosses everybody. He has authority. He has exousia over his churches. How does this work? Because he presents himself very clearly all over, but especially in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians as the economos, the house manager. And he refers to his work as economia. Very important. That's why he is 
the master of everyone and at the same time the servant of everyone. And to understand that, one has to remember how the Roman household worked. The pater familias was the only boss as owner. Now his economos is a slave. He would choose one of his slaves to be economos. It's not that the economos is something else free, equal to the master. No way. But he assigns him in this position. And we know this is not something strange for a Roman ear because every child ultimately is adopted by his father. <laughs> by choice, the father has to put the child on his knee, which is genu, and the child only at that moment becomes genuine. You know, DNA and CSI would not work in the Roman Empire. Even if the Romans were aware of it, it wouldn't work because that is not the law. The law is always the choice of adoption. And this is what Paul stresses in Galatians chapter 4. So I hope my readers are realizing that I was not jumping all over the place. It's the basic fabric of scriptures. As I said so many times, the scripture is written in an anti-kingly mood, anti-power mood, anti-propriety mood. And unless one submits to that, one is bound to misunderstand scripture. And you could see it in so many so-called scholarly books written by scholars. One has to submit. One cannot be the boss of Scripture. Scripture is not your book. I hear people all the time saying it's our book. It's not your book. It is the Logia to Theu, the oracles of God. They are His, not yours. And that is very important. Let me finish by saying that all that was written and kept in the temple and the palace of Jerusalem was either destroyed or burned by the invaders, the Babylonians. The Bible makes fun every time it tells you that king after king was disobedient to God. That's the main point the author wants to say. 33 times. And if you're interested to know more about this king, check the annals of the kings of Judah and of Israel. <laughs> but that's a low blow because they are not to be found anymore. <laughs> and that's the fallacy of the archaeology and historicizing and so on. It's a projection of our mind because we like it that way. There is nothing except scripture. Meaning if you have to refer to an event, even if that event is historical, quote-unquote, you don't know how it was originally. All you know is the rendering of Scripture, and the rendering of Scripture is always bad news. <laughs> it's never good news. People are disobedient. So let me wrap up. You can cover the entire Bible, as I tried to do in this presentation, if you zero in on David on the condition that you would hear the texts about David in the Bible in the sequence in which they appear in the Bible. Then, slowly on, you realize what's happening. David is restored to the time when he was just a roi tzon, because this is how God like his leaders.
Remember Moses, the first time you meet him, he was a right son. That expression is very important, and I would like to say it again for my hearers, not just shepherd, like some translations would tell you that Abel was a shepherd. Well, shepherd is just roe. You don't need roe tzon. So when the text says specifically roe tzon, it is intentional. Shepherd of flock. Why? Because later you realize that the flock is owned by God and only God. If Ezekiel is making a point that David is a Nasi, then it contradicts other places where it presents him as a Melech. How do you bring those two disparate ideas? I know you mentioned it, but if you could go a little bit deeper. Yeah, I said intentionally the first time at the end of 34, he is presented as a Nasi. It's a long chapter. Let me read you verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I will make them lie down. And you can read the two verses before and after, but I'm choosing this one specifically. And then David, in this sense, cannot be shepherd in the way God is shepherd. He is an assignee. And to belittle him, he is mentioned as Nasi. Now, there is a big debate since you opened the topic. He is also referred to as king. You see, the author does not shy from that. But then there is a play on this matter. Scholars debate whether it is a noun, Melek, or it's a verb, he reigns. That is interesting, but without going in detail. It's literature. It's not that there is a word. It is so. Well, David is mentioned as a king also in Psalms. But let me go in this direction to show you how scripture works. The way I tried to present it in Ezekiel, I see a parallelism in the book of Psalms. André Wenin, a Belgian scholar, professor and dean of New Testament and dean of the School of Theology at Louvain-la-Neuve, showed that there is a movement in the book of Psalms. For instance, at the beginning, you have more, and I discuss this in my book, you have more reference to Jerusalem. Slowly on, you have more reference to Zion. And for me, Zion is, if you like, the heavenly Jerusalem specifically. But the same thing, Wenin says, happens with the word king. If you open a concordance at the beginning of the book of Psalms, that term king is used more profusely about the human king. But slowly on, the book starts using it for the heavenly king. So it's a question not of feeling, but of feel. You have to ride the boat through the book of Psalms. At the beginning, you begin with the earthly king and the earthly Jerusalem. At the end, you finish with the heavenly king. This is what's happening. It's not that... It is so or not so, meaning that David is a king in which sense, it's like Paul is the father of his communities. If you hear it just like that, then he is also, if you like, the pater familias. But he corrects himself in nine. Let's go to nine. Although I'm free of all, I made myself the slave of all for the sake of the gospel, which he referred to earlier as his economia, his assignment, his business. 
Let me jump because it's important, and I thank you for this question. When you hear Paul speaking to Timothy, he has to be shepherding the household of God. It is not his household. Even if it is his, he has to behave as though it's not his, and that is reflected in the following letter to Philemon. So if you read the three pastorals, plus Philemon, which are four letters addressed to individuals, you will see that it culminates with Philemon, who is the head of a house, and Paul is telling him, don't forget, I am your boss in the gospel. When I come to visit you, I sit at the head of the table. And that's how we have to view things. Let me give my listeners, especially the Orthodox, an example. The priest is not the representative of the bishop as you hear as no when he is celebrating the liturgy he is the full priest is reflecting christ but when the bishop visits he takes over not only in church but even in the parsonage of the priest it is the bishop that sits at the head of the table by protocol another example the president or the king and the ambassador throughout the year and years in a row the ambassador is the boss of his house and actually he is on his turf you know that the embassy is not part of the turf of the country where it is it is its own country the embassy of the u.s in france is u.s territory but when the president comes he is the man the ambassador would give him his suite that would be the answer to your question. And we need to repeat that. So at the end, David, through the text, reread it in Hebrew, you know Hebrew, 34 and 37, it's a distinct, more than impression, feel that he is second to God. Whereas in Samuel, he wanted to take, actually, he told God, I am going to build you a house and put your ark in it. And God said, excuse me? <laughs> That's what you think. But I'm going to build you a house. And you know Hebrew, the play on the house. House is a building and also a household. David wanted to build a house for God. He said, you're not going to build it. It's your son that's going to build it. And I am going to build you a house, which is a household in the prophecy of Nathan. I took my time because, first of all, it was worth it to clarify the whole matter. Okay, buddies. Thank you very right. much, buddies. We're so all much. set. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.